0: transforming society podcast is brought to you by bristol university press and policy press in episodes covering a wide range of social issues we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better in 1860 writer and philosopher john ruskin said the art of making yourself rich is equally and necessarily the art of keeping your neighbor poor Yet so much of the conversation and debate around inequality has treated poverty as a distinct condition and unrelated to wealth. In this episode, I'm talking to Stuart Lansley about his book, The Richer, the Poorer, which shows how, for 200 years, Britain's most powerful elites have enriched themselves at the expense of surging inequality, mass poverty, and weakened social resilience. Why are rich and poor citizens judged by such different standards? And why has social progress been so narrowly shared? Hello Stuart.
1: Hello Jessica. Hello.
0: Thank you for speaking to me today. It's, um,
1: it's a pleasure.
0: I very much enjoyed reading your book. It feels like it's a real comprehensive introduction to this huge question I think. So I think what makes your book different is that it looks at the relationship between poverty and wealth over 200 years. So why is it important to examine the links between poverty and wealth rather than treat them separately, as so much research in the past has done? Well,
1: I mean, I think if you look at modern, modern history, I mean, the last 200 years, um, most policy and most analysis around the issue of poverty and inequality have treated them pretty well as separate conditions. You know, mm. poverty uh, is something very, very distinct from inequality. What's happening at the top Uh, doesn't affect what's happening at the bottom. And and, and what's happening at the bottom is is completely independent of what's happening at the top. I mean, I I really set out to show that this is not the case, that the two are very, very intimately and closely linked. Um, I mean, let's take the the 19th century as the kind of starting point. Uh, The 19th century is an era of uh, huge growth in wealth at the top because of the Industrial Revolution. But this wealth sat beside crushing poverty. You know, a significant minority of the population lived at barely above subsistence standards. And yet the policy response to poverty at the time was that poverty was self-inflicted. It was was down to people themselves, they weren't getting work or they weren't trying hard enough. Um, And the structural shifts that were taking place at the time, the, the industrialization of Britain, the move to the urban areas, the slum conditions in which people worked, the you know significant levels of unemployment and low pay were not considered to be the causes of poverty. and uh, mm-hmm. clearly they were. So I think that and if we if we if we look at the relationship over time between poverty and inequality, they follow exactly the same trends. So poverty and inequality were high up to 1945. Then we have the post-1945 era when both of them fell and we actually had peak equality in the 1970s and an historic low point for poverty. Uh, And then what's happened since then is that two have gone hand in hand again. We had a big surge in inequality during the 1980s and along with it a big surge in poverty and both of them are still high. So the two are interrelated. If if you think about poverty is essentially a situation uh, where uh, a proportion of the population uh, simply don't have enough income to be able to maintain what most people would say is a minimal acceptable living standard. And that, that inability is heavily related to the share of the national cake Uh, to how the national cake is shared and if that bottom if if it's very very heavily concentrated at the top then levels of poverty are going to be high simply because incomes will be too low at the bottom in order to sustain a decent life so they are intimately related you can't understand one without looking at the other and you can't solve the problem of poverty without tackling inequality.
0: So the way we live now might be very different but what you're saying is actually very little has changed um, in terms of the relationship between the rich and the poor. You chart this kind of high poverty, high inequality cycle. So why, why does that cycle remain as embedded today as it has been in the past?
1: Well, I mean, I think I think it's, if you look at the last 200 years, this, this what I call the high poverty, high inequality cycle uh, has been there for, you know, eight tenths of the time, the only time that cycle was broken, uh, was in the post-war era uh, when um, egalitarians won the battle of ideas, and I think uh, it, the battle of ideas about the way we run societies and how economies work is absolutely integral to understanding this cycle. Um, in, 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 the, in the mid, you know, after the war, egalitarians won the argument. Uh, And we had um, the post-war government and then, I mean, governments up to the mid-1970s believed in tackling poverty. They set out strong measures to tackle poverty and also to reduce inequality. And then what happened is that the egalitarians lost the argument. And this this sort of new group of thinkers who were anti-egalitarian started to, you know, the baton got passed to a school that really believed that what Britain needed was a stiff dose of inequality. So what we've had over the last sort of 40 years is the outcome of that baton passing on, if you like. Um, we've had uh, essentially a state and business initiated live experiment in inequality in running uh, the economy at a much higher level of concentration of power and income and wealth at the top. and, and, and th- We've never broken that. We've never, although there are now big questions being asked um, about whether inequality is too high and we need to do something about it. Essentially, um, the the, 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 the conventional wisdom, it's still that, or has been until probably the last few years, uh, the conventional wisdom is that inequality is good for the economy and good for society. So, Until we swing back so that, you know, the egalitarians win back the philosophical and ideological high ground, um, then I don't think we're going to make very much progress in in breaking that cycle.
0: So the UK actually now has the second highest level of income inequality amongst the rich countries. So why is it particularly bad here? Um, And it might be a really obvious question, but what's the impact of living in such an unequal society?
1: Well, I think there are several reasons why we've had this great surge in inequality. I think the first is uh, that many of the pro-equality policies and institutions of the post-war era have have been eroded. And so Britain has, um, for example, a, a very mean, patchy, and punitive uh, social security system. We also have an economic system that has a built-in bias to inequality. Uh, and that's because many of um, many big businesses and uh, many institutions of the economy actually operate in, in a way that benefit the existing rich at the expense of other sectors of society. Mm-hmm. But I think we're now uh, getting the evidence from this, this sort of 40-year experiment in inequality Uh, and the evidence shows that uh, on many levels inequality is very very bad news. I mean it's bad news to society Uh, We know it's the source of of a lot of social ills, particularly the lack of opportunity uh, uh, among certain sections of society. We now know that it's actually bad for the economy. The the evidence is very clear that if you concentrate too much wealth and income at the top, it actually sets in train forces uh, that destabilize the economy and make it more turbulent. And there's a lot of evidence that the 2008 crash was directly related to the, the huge levels of inequality in Britain and elsewhere. Um, and, and it's bad for democracy. I mean, if you look at if you look at uh, voting patterns between uh, the better off and the worst off, there's been a huge and rising gap over the last 30, 30 years. I mean, the poor are much less likely to vote than the rich. So it, it's weakening democracy. So... Uh, on almost every level I- inequality is bad news and we really do need to to reduce these wealth income and, and opportunity gaps
0: so just going back to the question the relationship between inequality and the economy and um it contributing to the 2008 crash <clears throat> excuse me what is that relationship how exactly does inequality affect the economy is it to do with how much people spend or
1: well, it is it's what, what I call luxury capitalism. Um, if you, if, if economic decisions and levels of demand are dictated uh, by uh, those and spending patterns of those at the top, it 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 sets in train forces um, that make economies more unstable. What happened in the eighties and nineties is that. Uh, the distribution uh, between um, owners of businesses and wage earners shifted towards the t- t- towards capital, so
0: mm-hmm. there was
1: a big there was a significant fall in the share of the economy going to wages. This means that the bulk of wage earners uh, couldn 't spend enough to keep the economy going because right. too much of the money was at the top. So what happened is that we had these huge increases in borrowing, So the level of borrowing, private borrowing in Britain rose from something like 30% of the economy to 150% of the economy. And it's that huge leap in borrowing uh, that created a huge bubble that wasn't just in Britain, but it was a global bubble that eventually broke. And, you know, there's lots of evidence about this now. I mean, even... Some of the big international organisations like the World Bank and the IMF and the ILO um, have done a lot of studies on this. And um, it's pretty well the conventional wisdom now that excessive levels of inequality uh, are very, very bad for economic strength and, and stability.
0: Oh, that explains it really well. Thank you. Um, if somehow, even despite the evidence, it feels like it's unlikely that's going to change anytime soon, but we'll get onto to that. Um, so in the book, you kind of highlight the notion of the undeserving poor and how that's been a perpetual theme. We don't talk about the undeserving rich, which says a lot about who sets the agenda. Why are rich and poor citizens still judged by such different standards and expectations?
1: Well, I think that, that, that this, is, this is very important because um, the, 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 this the way we treat Different citizens um, has uh, changed a lot through history. I mean, in the in the in the nineteenth century, uh, the poor were treated uh, very very harshly and very badly, um, and that weakened after the war. And you know, the post-war social reforms uh, introduced new principles about the way societies operate, um, and the the social security system became one of entitlement and a lot of the new benefits were universal so the the idea was that they should be inclusive and everybody should be seen as belonging on an equal basis to society and we've now gone back over the last sort of 30 or 40 years some of those post-war principles have have broken down and we've gone back to these much harsher attitudes uh, towards low-income uh, sections of society very very similar to to the uh, to the Victorian era. Now, the the the, the, the post-war uh, sort of social policies based being based on the idea of reciprocity, the idea that uh, rights um, come with responsibility. So, and this has been you know large part of the post-war social policy has gained public support because of this idea of reciprocity. But reciprocity that applies only to one section of society and not to all sections of society is not of a politics of inclusion. It's a pol- policy of division. But that's exactly what we have. In Britain, reciprocity applies to low-income families, but it doesn't apply to the rich. So, um, it, 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 you know, the, 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 the low-income Households are pilloried, they're demonized by governments, by the press. um, And, you know, and 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 policy benefits come with very, very harsh conditions. I mean, during the 2010, five million sanctions were issued again by the DWP uh, against benefit recipients. Now, none of this harshness applies to the rich. The rich don't really they, they they have lots of rights but they don't they don't have any enforced responsibilities and they don't take their responsibilities very seriously so we spend we give as much in subsidies to big business britain it's around 100 billion as we do in benefits to working class hazard. but 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 those subsidies to big business come with no conditions at all no conditions on uh, employment policy on social responsibility on paying their taxes so we can see there is this you know huge divide uh, between the way the idea of rights and responsibilities applies uh, to different sections of society uh, and and that that we really do need to get back to a universal system of reciprocity
0: it really feels like it's one set of rules for one group and another set for another. And you're never going to get that inequality gap smaller unless those rules start to change, isn't it? Like by applying um, rules to business about paying taxes and things like that. Um, So, I mean, the living standards of the poorest are much higher today than they used to be. But I wanted to ask you about um, measurement of poverty um, because that can be tricky. Um, Because when you measure poverty like in the past against contemporary standards, then obviously our quality of life is better. Could you talk us through the issues and challenges to do with how we measure poverty?
1: Yes, I mean, the, 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 you know, until um, the Second World War, um, poverty was considered to, to be uh, an absolute measure uh, based on subsistence. The people were poor if they didn't have enough to eat or they didn't have a home. Um, uh, but then, after the war, as living standards began to rise, it, it became accepted that poverty wasn't just about these absolutely basic uh, measures of, of health, um, but it was also about social participation. It was also about being members of society, and that if you didn't, if you were unable to participate socially as well as physically um th- then you were um you, you you were you were poor as well. And and um so the idea of poverty being absolute um changed into the idea that poverty was essentially relative, i.e., the minimum living standards that define poverty um were 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 about the typical sort of uh, pastimes and and spending habits that, that that were common and not just those of the past so you know we we assumed we wouldn't measure poverty today on the basis of whether you you have running water at home or whether, whether you you know you, you have a sewage system or you you have an inside toilet um, but we say you know that, that that these minimum standards that we expect now are related to Common social mores and, and, and practices so and I think that there have been quite a lot of studies that have done which have asked the public not just in Britain but across the world what they consider to be fundamental necessities for life, and the evidence from these surveys have showed uh, that uh, the idea of relativity is 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 embedded into the thinking of of, of ordinary people so uh, that's why we can't really measure poverty today on the standards of hundred years ago or fifty years ago or even twenty years ago um, you know the, 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 the computers didn't exist in the 19th century and they didn't in, they didn't exist thirty years ago but but now it's extremely difficult uh, to lead a, a fully effective life without access to a computer so yeah uh, these changes you, you know we need to measure. Um, what's an acceptable minimum in terms of modern standards.
0: We've mentioned the post-war period quite a lot. Um, I wanted to ask you about turning points and opportunities over the last 200 years. And I don't know if that's the only one, but there must have been moments as you were doing your research where you thought, oh, if only this had happened or if only that had happened, so I wanted to ask if there are any moments like that in addition to the post-war period, I think. Oh, and um, could the pandemic be one of them?
1: Yes, I mean, I, I think there have been the, these two seismic shifts in, in political and economic philosophy. The first was 1945 and the second one was uh, the, the 1980s when we moved away from the social democracy of the post-war era into the idea of, of market capitalism yes. um, and um, th- th- i think there was a lot of hope a lot of expectation that the 2008 crash would prove uh, because it was so devastating and it was you know the deepest crash since the one in you know the 1930s the, mm. the 1929 and then the recession of the 1930s that this would force big uh, you know big changes in 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 how we run our economies but but it didn 't it didn 't instead of um, a new paradigm shift um, in, in that th- th- we ended up with you know kind of um, very similar policies to the 1930s i mean in Britain and Europe and to a lesser extent in the United States, we had a decade of austerity mm-hmm. uh, w- w- which actually you know the evidence really is that this entrenched the problems. Uh, and then I think, you know, the, again, the the, um, the, the the COVID pandemic has raised expectations that this would, again, reset the way societies um, are run. And there's been a lot of talk about creating a better post-COVID society. Mm. Uh, and there is a lot of thinking going on uh, about what a better society would look like, but um, uh, and so there's quite a lot of, I mean, it, it is in many ways, you know, we this is a golden opportunity to reset the clock and uh, undo the mistakes of the past. Um, the evidence, unfortunately, is that uh, it doesn't seem that we're getting, you know, the, the kind of radical shifts, uh, the progressive packages that would undo many of. The problems at the moment that would, you know, wipe out the inequality bias in economies, that would raise the income floor, uh, that would do something about um, improving well-being. Um, uh, these seem to me to be the priorities. If we're going to create a better COVID society, societies may need to be much more geared away from consumption towards well-being, than uh, they need to you know, try and close some of these terrible gaps and they need to reset the social security system so that societies are, 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 you know are not as insecure as they are at the moment but none of these things really seem to be happening so uh, i i was a bit of an optimist that 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 that, that both 2008 and and 2020 would trigger some really big global changes um in the, in governance and but the, you know this doesn't really seem to be happening at, only at the margins at the moment so i guess um i think hope is draining away a little bit
0: yeah it's so depressing isn't it when you see this kind of potential moments for shifts and then it just kind of reverts back to form doesn't it this leads me on to my final question and you may have already answered it in part but the copy on the back of the book asks a big question, which is, what needs to be done to break Britain's destructive poverty inequality cycle? So, having been on this research journey and looked at the last two hundred years, what conclusions have you come to?
1: Well, I, I mean, I think you know, I think we need uh, the sort of try- if we're going to break uh, this this third wave of the cycle which has been going on for 40 years now. We, we need the kind of transformative changes that we had in 1945. And that means we, re- we need to uh, renew our commitment to egalitarianism. Uh, we need to accept the fault lines. Uh, we need to tackle the inequality bias in our society and, and inequality in, in, our, in our business systems. Um, and, and we need a, you know, a complete transformation in, in the way we run economies and societies. And I mean, I think the risk is that all will end up with, with us a little bit of uh, tweaking. Um, Beveridge, William Beveridge, in his 1942 report, uh, which launched, you know, parts of the post-war welfare state, he said uh, the time is the time is not for patching. And. Um, and we need to do the same. Today is not for patching.
0: That's a really strong and important sentiment to end on, I think, Um, one that we really need to keep in mind, despite the fact that things aren't looking altogether hopeful at the moment. Thank you for speaking to me today, Stuart.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: No, thanks. Um, Stuart's book, The Richer, the Poorer, is out now. More information is available on our website, which is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.